It all started in the 1770s when a German doctor named Franz Mesmer theorized that every living thing, if not the entire universe, is under the influence of a mystical, unseen fluid he called animal magnetism. This liquid life force flows through the body like blood and has the power to influence and regulate the health of the mind, body, and soul alike. So basically, if you suffer from any kind of illness or ailment, physical or mental, it's because your secret soul juice pipes are all clogged and fucked up. Mesmer claimed that the invisible fluid could be manipulated with magnets or with laying of hands, which, if done properly, induced a trance-like state. While the patient was mesmerized, they were said to be capable of otherwise impossible feats, like clairvoyance, superhuman strength, and even contact with otherworldly beings. It had its side effects, though, like violent convulsions and projectile vomiting. But the crisis, as it was called, was all just part of the treatment. Mesmer's magnetic therapy was designed to shock the body and senses so badly that the patient's consciousness would separate from their corporeal form and look down at themselves using supernatural x-ray vision to identify the source of their affliction and, in some cases, cure it by restoring equilibrium to the animal juice, a psychic plunger to unclog the soul jams, if you will. Okay, so full disclosure, I read like 200 pages about this stuff and I'm pretty sure I still don't get it. However it worked, or even if it worked, is kind of beside the point though. The magnetic treatments usually took place in front of an audience of spectators, making them more like stage shows than medical procedures. And it was that aspect of it that made Dr. Franz Mesmer into an international celebrity sensation. His healing sessions became so phenomenally popular in Europe and America that Louis XVI called in some of the world's greatest minds, including Ben Franklin, to determine if this magnet thing was legit. Their conclusion was that no, animal magnet fluid was some silly bullshit, but as far as they could tell, the cures themselves actually worked. At least sometimes, depending on the person, and only if the person actually believed they would work. While it had its fair share of critics and skeptics, obviously, Mesmer's theory, method, and flair for style laid the foundation for two centuries worth of alternative medicine including homeopathy, hypnotism, Reiki, and countless other metaphysical fads. Mesmerism itself more or less died out by the mid-1800s, but the litany of pseudosciences it inspired were just getting started. The biggest and most influential of which was spiritualism, a movement sparked by two young girls in the deeply religious, burned-out district of upstate New York. In 1848, 10 and 14-year-old Maggie and Catherine Fox told their mother they'd been hearing strange sounds around the house that they couldn't explain and that whatever was causing them seemed to be trying to communicate. When the girls asked questions, the presence responded by rapping on a table, claiming to be the spirit of someone who'd been murdered inside the house. Their mother was so impressed by these ghost interrogations that she brought her friends over to witness the spectacle firsthand. It was a hoax, of course. The Fox sisters were just really, really good at cracking the joints of their toes beneath the table. But since they were so young and it was such a good trick, pretty much everyone who came to the seances believed they were actually talking to a spirit from beyond the veil. A friend of the family introduced the sisters to a group of Quakers who were deeply involved in the progressive movements of the time, and word of the girls' talent spread through radical and reformist circles throughout the Northeast. Soon the Fox sisters were attracting attention from prominent activists of all stripes, abolitionists, women's rights advocates, temperance crusaders, and even the utopian socialist followers of Charles Fourier, whose influence on the culture of Dallas we covered in our episode, You May All Go to Hell. Check it out, we're really proud of that one, and it's not like you got anywhere else to be. 
Anyway, the Fox sisters' parlor tricks inspired others to get in on the ghost game, launching a nationwide trend and creating an undeniable overlap between radical social reform and communication with the dead. Legendary figures like Sojourner Truth came out to see the Fox sisters do their thing, and though Frederick Douglass wasn't buying it, a lot of ineffably important people he ran with totally did. It became a two-way street as more and more reformers became spiritualists, more and more spiritualists became reformers. Come for the ghosts, stay for the overthrow of the socio-political status quo, which is low-key the ethos of this podcast, but don't tell anyone. By sheer happenstance, a spooky slumber party ruse perpetrated by preteen girls literally brought droves of people into the folds of what were arguably the most important socio-political movements in American history. As unifying and important as the spiritualist trend was to 19th century activism, it's crucial for us to note that it was still predominantly a thing for upper-class white people in the Northeast, and the ghosts they were conjuring just happened to favor whatever agenda was most popular among those who just happened to be seated at the seance table. Now, don't get us wrong, the policy reforms the movement promoted and at times generated were real, meaningful, and groundbreaking. But to put it in modern terms, at its height, the average seance was less of a radical activist meetup than it was a coastal elite Whole Foods checkout counter charity donation of a Buttigieg rally. Like a lot of things in this episode, or just history in general, it's complicated. Especially when it came to Native American rights. As social scientist and historian Catherine Troy explains, quote, Undoubtedly, on some level spiritualists recognized the Indian specters that appeared at seances as a symbol of the sins and subsequent guilt of the United States in its dealings with Native Americans. Spiritualists were literally haunted by the presence of Indians, but for many, that guilt was not assuaged. Rather, in order to confront the haunting and rectify it, they were galvanized into action. The political activism of spiritualists on behalf of Indians was thus the result of combining white guilt and fear of divine judgment with a new sense of purpose and responsibility. So while the movement spurred hugely important political action, it also popularized the lingering stereotype of Native Americans as some kind of cartoonish spiritual conscience, a noble savage, and mainstreamed what today we call white guilt and white savior complex. The ghost might not have been real, but in a way, the hauntings absolutely were. Most seances were just group therapy for limousine liberals who wanted to exercise the demons gnawing on the shame of their unearned privilege. And for better or worse, it changed the way popular culture perceived and addressed some of the very real horrors of the time. Taking a cue from Mesmer, the seances were a combination of religious experience and exhilarating stage show, and soon celebrity spiritualists were selling out theaters and raking in the cash. Bookstore shelves became flooded with horror stories, spooked up histories of the Salem witch trials, and the literary equivalent of those corny travel channel docudramas about paranormal encounters. Even mainstream newspapers were running stories about ghosts and haunted houses without a shred of skepticism, which, we're not gonna lie, sounds kinda rad. For nearly a century, America basically went full-on goth. But it wasn't all spooky escapism. The country was still riven and reeling in the bloody aftermath of the Civil War. Nearly every American had lost family members or friends to the battlefield, not to mention the constant onslaught of diseases that no doctor could cure. In an era of division and death, the failures and letdowns of medical science made the whole practice seem ineffectual and indifferent. Alternative medicine promised hope in a way science never could, and spiritualist seances offered emotional closure and the possibility of a life beyond death and beyond the violent misery of a world in shambles. 
And there's no better poster boy for this than Andrew Taylor Still. He was a personal friend of activist John Brown and a staunch abolitionist who took up arms against slavery in the battles of bleeding Kansas. After the war, he lost his son to spinal meningitis, and his frustration and heartbreak turned him into a crusader against establishment medical science. There just had to be something better, something that could have saved his son. So he started studying hydropathy, mesmerism, and spiritualism before he eventually founded a practice of his own, osteopathic medicine. It wasn't actually better than medical science, but at the time, it wasn't exactly worse either. Still's loss and pain, coupled with his affinity for weird ghost magnet stuff, led him to pioneer the concept of preventative medicine, and he became one of the first physicians ever to target his treatments at the diseases themselves rather than just treating individual symptoms. His contemporary and kindred spirit of magnetic healing, Daniel David Palmer, followed a similar path, founding his own rethemed take on animal magnetism that he called chiropractic medicine, which he claimed to have learned from a ghost doctor that he'd conjured during a seance. So, you know, maybe keep that in mind next time you have back pain. And they weren't the only ones capitalizing on the crossroads of medicine and faith. This was the golden age of pseudoscience, the birth of phrenology, galvanism, the obsession with Martian canals and lost continents, reflexology, and so much more. Not to mention creationism, the Christian backlash against the theory of evolution, which was shockingly tame back then compared to its uh, modern-day counterpart. And as wrong or ridiculous as a lot of these ideas seem to us now, they were an understandable response to the failures and perceived callousness of medical science. You have to keep in mind that serious medical journals of the time were claiming that cholera and smallpox were caused by things like wet feet, passionate rage, or an irregular pooping schedule. And physicians were still promoting treatments like draining blood into a bucket, chugging opium, and of course, prayer. Don't get us wrong, medical science made some huge advances during the 19th century. But when the average doctor visit still involved covering your kid in leeches only for them to die a day later, it's kind of hard to blame people for seeking alternatives. And mental health care was even worse. So-called lunatic asylums were flourishing all over the country, and as business grew, rehabilitation began taking a back seat to containment and control. Inmates were routinely beaten, experimented on, drugged, and even used for slave labor. For women, it was even worse. They were subjected to horrifying sexual violence, and most were only committed in the first place for having so-called disorders, like insufficient femininity, whether they were gay, disobedient to their husbands, or just liked man stuff, like, you know, books. And more often than not, the only ways out of a lunatic asylum were burial or incineration. All that to say, medical science wasn't exactly doing a bang-up job of earning the people's trust. No one knew who or what to believe, and it's hard to blame them. After all, if sickness and death were really caused by mysterious unseen forces, was graveyard fog really any less believable than an invasion of super tiny creatures that clone themselves in our blood? While Don Pedro was out working his magic, the fledgling medical establishment, led by the recently founded American Medical Association, was beginning to coalesce, standardize, and modernize the practice of medicine from the national level all the way down to the local. The AMA was founded in 1847 in reaction to very genuine concerns over the lack of standards for medical schools and journals at a time when even places like Harvard and Yale were pretty much just selling medical degrees to anyone who had cash on hand. They also set out to combat what they called quackery, especially homeopathic medicine, the epidemic of unqualified or fraudulent physicians, 
the rampant spread of disinformation, and the sale of bunk or dangerous cures. And this is where we come in with the obligatory disclaimer. This miniseries was difficult to research and write, not just because it's such a sprawling and controversial subject, but because at this weird historical junction of science and superstition, absolutely nothing is black and white. The people who fought and died for human rights in America also believe that psychic mediums could vomit up ectoplasm. It was mostly just cheesecloth and chicken livers. The placebos of faith healers were providing an invaluable service to the lives of the most vulnerable, even if they didn't actually work. Advancements in medical science eradicated diseases and dramatically prolonged and improved our lives. And turned healthcare into a massive industry built and maintained by greed, neglect, and cruelty. Again, it's complicated. The dean of the medical department at Tulane University wrote at the time that so-called irregular healers were, quote, the greatest foe to the medical profession because they were an obstacle to the financial success of the reputable medical practitioner. And he wasn't alone in that opinion among the newly united medical profession. After all, they were educated and accredited on the cutting edge of medical science, and they thought they deserved more credit and better compensation for what they were doing. So in the 1890s, physicians started to petition for higher rates of pay, like a lot higher. As the cost of care kept rising, the poor and the working class of Texas found themselves with no choice but to seek out affordable alternatives. A three-way competition was starting to heat up between science, spirituality, and snake oil. As far as the doctors were concerned, these irregular healers and hucksters were unfairly cutting into their patient pool by offering fanciful miracles to the gullible rubes. And the American Medical Association, with the help of the federal government, started cracking down. Don Pedro came to San Antonio for the first time in 1894. He set up an outdoor pavilion where massive crowds of the sick and the skeptical alike gathered to see the Corandero in action, including a small army of incredulous physicians flanked by federal agents hoping to call him out in public, prove him a fraud, and shut him down. The San Antonio Daily Express said, quote, The best physicians in the city are alarmed by the inroads already made into the ranks of their patients. And they, in concert with the Texas Medical Association, lobbied Congress to pass a law requiring that, quote, Anyone professing to practice medicine in Texas shall go for examination. An exam that licensed members of the medical establishment would be completely in charge of. Don Pedro, of course, didn't have a license and wouldn't have qualified to get one anyway. But since he was providing his services for free, he technically wasn't breaking any laws but they arrested him anyway, claiming that offering charity health care to the poor was tantamount to inciting a riot. And yes, inciting a riot was the actual charge. The police held him in jail for a few weeks until they were grudgingly forced to acknowledge that he hadn't actually committed any crimes. Now, it's true that Pedro was receiving a steady stream of donations, no doubt about that, but everything he took in, he also gave away. Whenever he went out on one of his house call road trips, as many as 500 people would be camped out at his hut waiting for him to come back. Some so desperate, they traveled hundreds of miles on foot just to seek his help. Concerned that they wouldn't have money for food or warmth, Pedro converted a small lumber room next to his house into what he called the store. Basically an unlocked shed full of food and basic necessities that were free to anyone who needed them, no questions asked. Unable to keep up with the demand on his own, he hired a wagon team to keep the store stocked with groceries from the town of Alice, some 40 miles away. According to one grocer, 
Pedro was buying four or five hundred dollars worth at a time. Adjusted for today's inflation, that's over 10 grand per wagon trip. As soon as the area got its first post office, the letters immediately started flooding in, as many as 200 per week, and a fair amount of them came with 50 cent pieces enclosed as payment for the Coronderos advice. After using what little he needed to accommodate his dirt-poor existence, Don Pedro used the rest to stock his free food bank and pay his assistants, and if there was anything left over, he donated it to local churches. In fact, when a terrible drought struck the area in 1893, a neighbor later told reporters, quote, He practically fed the northern part of Starr County for several years until the drought passed. To the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed, and to anyone with a conscience, Don Pedro was like a superhero. But the AMA didn't see it that way. They struck up a partnership with the U.S. Postal Service to bust so-called irregular healers for mail fraud all over the country. And to be fair, a lot of it was justified. Savvy, slimy businessmen were cashing in on spiritualism and the other trendy weirdness by scamming people with bogus mail-order cures. The swindlers were robbing the vulnerable, and when their marks couldn't afford to seek real treatment when the snake oil failed, they died. The AMA and USPS weren't wrong to crack down. They just cast too wide of a net. Don Pedro wasn't a con artist, but when his long-distance patients wrote him for help, they had a tendency to enclose a stamp alongside their 50-cent pieces, hoping it would increase their chances of getting a return receta. Before long, the post office began noticing a disparity between the large volume of letters Pedro was sending out compared to the number of stamps they were selling in town. So in 1901, they called in the feds. The investigation didn't result in any charges, but it did put Don Pedro on the radar of federal law enforcement and made him one of the most hated and feared men in the world of Texas medicine. Don Pedro Jaramillo became the subject of countless conferences and venomous screeds penned for AMA-approved journals, but establishment circles were split over just who the infamous Curandero really was. Most considered him to be just another fraud, but more than a few of them believed he was literally a practitioner of actual magic. The journalists and doctors in the latter camp pointed to Don Pedro's Aztec heritage and claimed the blood coursing through his veins gave him supernatural powers, but with a small caveat. He was a Mexican, and therefore, they said, he was too dumb to actually wield them. As one journalist put it, quote, He does not know or profess to know who he is or what he is. The occult power of a prehistoric and advanced race has been transmitted to the present day through the humble body of an ignorant Mexican. Don Pedro, in all his humility, may very well have agreed with that assessment of his ignorance, but not with the alleged source of his powers. They didn't come from the Aztecs, they came from God. The same God, in fact, that was worshipped by the conquistadors who'd wiped them out. Despite preaching the gospel of the white man's God, Don Pedro was all at once accused of being a dangerous sorcerer and dismissed as an oblivious idiot. In the era Mark Twain famously called the Gilded Age, economic inequality wasn't the only social cancer obscured beneath the golden veneer. America was experiencing an unprecedented influx of immigration from all over the world, people hoping to get their slice of the economic upswing, but anti-immigrant sentiment was swinging up along with it. A lot of factors contributed to this. The aftermath of the Civil War, international decolonization, the rise of nationalism, Suffice it to say, this was the same era that brought us the mandatory Pledge of Allegiance, the founding of the KKK, and the belief among both the medical establishment and the common jackass alike that non-white people were the primary vectors of plague, if not a plague themselves. 
One prominent lawyer in the border town of Brownsville wrote at the time, quote, We should not raise the quarantine for any reason, even if it is starving or harming our working poor. We must stop the invasion of yellow fever to prevent American deaths, since one white man is worth 10 Mexicans. In the 1890s, and sadly to some extent today, it wasn't considered all that controversial. The rising tide of nationalism couldn't thrive without xenophobia, so it painted it up and called it patriotism, a virtue. It took the onus of racism off the individual and placed it onto the state. It wasn't the race you hated, of course not. It was merely the country of origin. Given that this was 19th century America and all white people were immigrants or close descendants of them, the hypocrisy is hard to ignore. But nowhere is it more starkly fucking obvious than Texas. The idea that Mexicans were disease-ridden foreigners came to dominate the regional conversation, despite, you know, the fact that Texas had literally been a state in Mexico just 50 years earlier, or the fact that most Tejanos were first or second generation American citizens themselves. You know, like pretty much every person of any race living in Texas at the time. Unfortunately, it gets even darker than that. There was another pseudoscientific trend at the time that we haven't mentioned yet. One far more sinister than anything conjured at a psychic seance, eugenics. If you don't know, eugenics is the belief that certain races, ethnicities, sexual orientations, and disabilities are inherently undesirable and should be removed from the gene pool. It was exploding in popularity at the turn of the century, especially in wealthy, cosmopolitan circles. The same target audience that spiritualism had helped galvanize against slavery, oppression, and basically everything eugenics stands for. It put a modern, intellectual sheen on the hip, cool idea of sterilizing and exterminating people of color and the poor. Unsurprisingly, it would come to be a major inspiration for Adolf Hitler and his rarely acknowledged, frighteningly large base of American sympathizers. And much like xenophobic nationalism, this thinking man's rationale for genocide has yet to follow ectoplasm and magnet healing to the graveyard of archaic nonsense. Eugenics wouldn't even become all that controversial until the 1960s. And as anyone with an internet connection knows, it hasn't exactly gone out of style either. Next time you hear some creepy dude use the term biotruth to science up his bigotry, you can thank the 1890s and then kick his fascist ass the fuck out of the bar. In a 1901 booklet, Faith, Cure, and the Law, John B. Huber railed against so-called irregular healers, declaring them, quote, pernicious movements and a serious threat to America's nationalist revival. Just to be clear, we're not defending psychic magnet cures for heartburn or whatever, but it's important to acknowledge that the medical establishment of the time thought it was totally fine to give cocaine to children to cure their shyness and lock women in asylums for having inconvenient female trouble. So, glass houses and whatnot. Now, it might be one thing if Huber and his ilk were trying to delegitimize irregular healers out of a genuine concern for their patients' health. And to be fair, some of them truly were. But the standardization of the medical industry was also a consolidation, no different than any of the other Gilded Age trusts that effectively controlled the United States from top to bottom. It established a professional elite who had the sole discretion over who was and wasn't a true physician, which allowed them to set and fix the prices of care and wield their collective wealth and power as a political bludgeon to bend the law and the culture to their will. 
the systematic demonization of irregular healers became an excuse to disregard the needs of the poor and criminalize and stigmatize the cultural traditions of Mexicans and Native Americans alike, and in turn, the people themselves. But like a lot of the horrors and absurdities to come out of the Gilded Age, it's kinda hard to draw a clear delineation between just how much of it was a sincerely held belief in white supremacy and how much of it was just capitalizing on social division, for profit, of course, but also for self-preservation. After all, the power and opulence that the elites of any industry had come to enjoy was wholly and precariously dependent on keeping the pitchforks of the working class pointed every which way but up. And it makes it a lot easier to guarantee a steady stream of business when your only competitor is death. In the field of medicine, at least, folk healers weren't just the affordable alternative. They were the resistance to the rising tide of eugenics, cutthroat capitalism, and ever-expanding state oppression. If only for a decade or two, they were culture jamming the gears of the odious machine. And the machine, sensing a very real threat to its hegemony, fought tooth and nail to stomp it out. Despite it all, Don Pedro continued his mission until the day he died in 1907. Letters addressed to the Curandero continued to pour into the local post office for years after his death, each one containing a humble plea for help and hope, a stamp, and if they could spare it, a 50 cent coin. Local postal workers and townsfolk dutifully collected the money and spent every cent exactly the way Don Pedro would have wanted, buying food for the poor and donating whatever was left to community churches. South Texans and believers the world over proclaimed Don Pedro the Saint of Falfarias, and though he was never officially canonized by the church, you can still, to this day, find shops selling prayer candles and figurines bearing his likeness, and families in the borderlands still have his portrait up on their walls, right alongside the saints. He's buried near the creek, memorialized by a modest stone cross bearing a simple Spanish epitaph. Here lies the remains of Pedro Jaramillo, the benefactor of humanity. Over 200 people still visit the gravesite every year to pay homage and to pray that Don Pedro's spirit might give them the hope that medical science still can't or won't provide. And if you drop by the Coranderos resting place at any given time, you're likely to find flowers, photographs, handwritten prayers, and even the occasional pair of crutches no longer needed and left behind in tribute by those who, even in death, he'd made whole. As historian, folklorist, and childhood neighbor of Don Pedro, Ruth Dodson, put it, quote, No one else in this part of the country, of whatever nationality, religion, economic, or social standing has done through a lifetime as much to try to relieve human suffering as this man did through the 25 years he lived in South Texas. It's true that some of the stories that are told may have been somewhat exaggerated, but they were told in good faith nonetheless. This is a story of healers and hucksters, of greed and hope, of haunted hotels and a present still haunted by its past. It's a story of miracles and curses that are all at once real, imagined, and somewhat exaggerated. But it's a story, nonetheless, told in good faith. To be continued. Tex Arcana is written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield and Brad Dewar, recorded right here in beautiful Denton, Texas. Home of Kuzu Radio, KUZU, Denton's own sort of pirate radio station. The playlists are great and well curated for sheltering in this place. 
Music by Whiskey Folk Ramblers. Additional music by Less Than One and available at freemusicarchive.org. Stay healthy, and we'll see you back here next Friday for part three. And thanks for listening, y'all. Thank you.